John chapter 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And there was a man sent by God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came as a witness to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Dear friends, as we celebrate this Christmas season on this Christmas Eve, we do so celebrating the fulfillment of God's plan to bring the true light of all the world into the world. As Adam mentioned in our greeting and our opening, in previous weeks, we've looked at all the kind of precursors to this moment. But this morning, we do away with all the kind of trailers and get to the main attraction. We do away with all those kind of precursors and we get to the focal point of all the scriptures, to the coming of light into a dark world in the person of Jesus Christ the Lord. We've seen in Judges chapter 13 how God was preparing the way for this moment when he miraculously sent birth in the form of the judge, the rescuer, Samson, to Baron, Manoah's wife. We saw in 1 Samuel chapter 1 how God was preparing the way for miraculous birth by giving miraculous conception to the barren womb of Hannah and the prophet Samuel who would go before King David. Last week we saw in Luke chapter 1 God preparing the way for a miraculous birth of one who was coming through the miraculous conception in the barren and old womb of Elizabeth in the birth of John the Baptist, whose ministry, John 1 tells us, was to come as a light. He came to bear witness about the light. He was not the light. The gospel writer John keeps telling us, John the Baptist was miraculously born, but he was not the light. But he came to bear witness about the light, the true light, who gives light to everyone who repents and believes was coming into the world. And this morning we set our eyes on God's word as we see who he is, why God sent him, why we need him, why there's reason to celebrate and to be joyful even in the midst of melancholy and some mess this Christmas season, no matter what you're going through because of what God has done for you and me in the person of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 1, we'll look at parts of Luke 1 and into Luke 2 this morning. Last week we looked at parts of Luke 1 as we looked at John the Baptist's story. This morning we look at Jesus. The main idea we, we get from this passage of Luke 1 and 2 is this, that God 
graciously sends his son into the world to rescue us so that we might rejoice in him. Our main idea of our passage this morning, God graciously sends his son into the world to rescue us so that we might rejoice in him. As we walk through this passage this morning, we'll hang our thoughts on, on three points as we walk along together. Number one, we'll, we'll point our eyes, lay our eyes on God's grace. You see in chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Number two, we see Mary's praise. In chapter 1, verse 39 down to verse 56. And then number three, the world's joy. See that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So three points of the sermon. Number one, God's grace. Number two, Mary's praise. And number three, the world's joy. Number one, God's grace. Look with me at Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26 down to verse 38 in your Bibles. We read, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing, nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her we really i was tempted to just like read the passage right we, we don't even really need commentary luke one and two kind of preach themselves right but you guys want me to do something this morning so i'm going <laughs> to give some some words right we see here in this passage a, a, a lot of things what i think we see most poignantly is god's grace god's grace i mean just just notice in this passage, some of the similarities between this one and the previous passage we were at last week in Luke 1. We read there in, in the first part of Luke chapter 1, the first 25 verses, the angel Gabriel had appeared to a man named Zechariah who was married to a woman named Elizabeth. And that angel Gabriel told Zechariah that his 
old and barren wife, Elizabeth, would bear a son whose ministry would be to prepare the way of the Lord. And we read that Elizabeth indeed did conceive. And she went and hid herself for five months. Well, our passage picks up this morning in the sixth month of the pregnancy. Notice verse 26 says it was the sixth month. But notice, though there's tie-ins of the angel Gabriel appearing to Zechariah and talking about an impending pregnancy and miraculous birth, and now the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary, notice some of the differences. Again, last week, Gabriel went to Zechariah, and we learned that Zechariah was an older man, a respected man, somebody who carried some clout in the community. We read of Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. We heard about their standing before the Lord and others. We read that they were righteous, both of them, before the Lord. We read that they walked blamelessly in all the commandments and traditions and statutes of the Lord God. We learned that they were both from the tribe of Levi. We read that Zechariah was distinguished as serving as a priest from the tribe of Levi. And we learned that Gabriel went and visited Zechariah, the priest, as he was carrying out one of the most distinguished duties in all of Israel while Zechariah was in the temple. Not just in the temple courtyard, but in the holy place. Not just in the holy place, but right outside the most holy place. Not just right outside the most holy place, but uh, offering incense on the altar of incense when the angel Gabriel appeared to him. In other words, when when you see the story of Gabriel appearing to Zechariah, you can see why he'd come to somebody like Zechariah in some place like the temple. It was a godly man with doing godly duties in God's place. Of course, Gabriel would go to him. But see how different different the audience is here. There's no prestigious family background attributed to Mary. We don't know what tribe she came from. Nor is there any mention of her religious standing or service. We merely learn that she's a virgin. Probably a girl no older than 12 or 13, as was the custom of the time. Young teenage girls engaged to be married. There's nothing remarkable about Mary's status that earns her a visit from the angel Gabriel. Neither is there anything remarkable about Mary's setting that earns her a visit from the angel Gabriel. We learn that she lives in Nazareth, this remote village known for being a good-for-nothing town. I mean, you might recall in in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, the disciple Philip meets Jesus. And in his joy, he runs and goes and tells his friend Nathaniel. And when he gets to him, he says, Nathaniel, we have found the Messiah, the one whom the prophets prophesied of old, Jesus of Nazareth. To which Nathaniel replied, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Nazareth was the kind of place where you'd mumble when people ask you, where you from? Nazareth. It's the kind of place kids set their sights on leaving just as soon as they graduated high school. Or the kind of place that adults couldn't wait to get away from when they saved up enough money to start a new fresh start at some new fresh place. But the place 
that everybody was itching to get away from was the very place that God was sending someone to. The angel, Gabriel, we learned, was sent from God to unappealing Nazareth and to unimpressive Mary. But what will be remarkable is not anything in Nazareth or anything in Mary, but what God will do in Nazareth through Mary. You, you, you kind of sense the, the, the setup of what God's planning to do by the constant reminder that Mary is a virgin. The, the, the virgin Mary. You know, God often does remarkable things to people unremarkable and undeserving. Friends, that's what's called grace. He comes to us. He does things to us for us, even though we do not deserve them. The angel Gabriel comes to Mary in verse 28 and tells her, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And he later comforts Mary as she is afraid in the midst of this angelic being, telling her in verse 30 that you have found favor with God. Again, just notice the words there. Mary hasn't earned God's favor. Rather, it's been bestowed upon her. She's the favored one. It's a passive thing. She hasn't worked her way to get God's favor. It's been bestowed upon her by the beneficent, good, loving, gracious God. Mary, apart from what many people might say, is not the dispenser of grace. Mary is the recipient of grace. God graciously comes to this woman through the word of an angel and bestows upon her great honor. It's no great honor that Mary inherently had. The great honor is that the Lord has come upon her, just like he's come upon us. All right? It's always our honor when the Lord visits us. Look at verse 31. This angel tells her, you will conceive and bear a son and call his name Jesus and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The son that Gabriel previously promised to Zechariah and Elizabeth, he too promised would be great. But his greatness would be tied to the ministry of pointing, of preparation, not to fulfillment. He was pointing to this greater one, Jesus. Notice the angel says, you will call his name Jesus. It's the Hebrew word Yeshua, which literally means the Lord saves. And whereas last week we learned that John would be called the prophet of the most high. Notice here that Jesus would be called the son of the most high. Is this the, the terminology that's used, the designation that's used in the Old Testament, Testament time and time again to talk about God himself, the most high God. And we read the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Through this little teenager. God was planning to bring the savior of the whole world. A son and not just her son, but his son, the divine son who eternally existed as the son of the most high, but who in space and time put on flesh, entered into the world as a babe to accomplish God's plans and purposes. 
So, so, so kids, if you've been reading this passage or, or have looked at this passage, and you might be scratching your head, how can this be Mary's son? You will bear a son, the angel tells Mary. And he be the son of the Most High. And he be David's son. He will be of the house of his father David. Well, it's because this son who was born to Mary has always existed as God's son. Jesus Christ became a man 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ did not become God 2,000 years ago. He has always existed as the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God who has come into the world as a babe to fulfill God's promises. Promises like the one he gave in in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to King David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne and rule forever. Solomon, David's son, ruled for a minute and it seemed like it was good. The whole nation prospered under his rule, but Solomon walked away from the Lord and died. And all the subsequent Davidic kings lived and ruled for a minute. If you read the books of 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, you see there's many kings, some good, some bad, some who reigned for 20, 30 years, others who reigned for a few single-digit years. All of them, however, died. None of them ruled forever. The prophecy is still standing in limbo, it seems. But, but, but here's the angel Gabriel saying it. Through your son, God's son, David's son will rule forever. Mary's question is quite understandable. In verse 34, she asks, how can this be? All these grand things you're saying since I am a virgin. I love the transparency of the Bible. The Bible is not trying to pull wool over our eyes. I love the the realness of the Bible. The the Bible is not trying to to sell fantasy and pass it off as as, as truth. The Bible isn't presenting unbelievable things only to be believed by gullible folks way back when, before they had the internet, (laughs) right? Now these are real people with the same biological makeup as us who've taken the same anatomy classes as us, who've had the same conversations about the birds and bees with their parents as us. Mary is no dummy. She knows that there's only one way that a woman gets a baby, and that is through having sex with a man. And so she logically asks, how will this be since I have never once had sex? since I am a virgin. Now, this is just an aside here, but Mary has never had sex because Mary is not married. Sex is for marriage. That is God's design. Whatever the world might try to convince you of, sex is reserved for marriage. And so you won't kind of get a systematic theology of the Bible in the Bible of sex. But you get these kind of statements that are just thrown in without much fanfare or commentary. Why is this woman a virgin? Because she's still engaged. She's betrothed. Right. That's even a a, a model for some of us. We act like even that engagement period gives a little bit more freedom we almost there, right? No, 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 no. She, she, she ain't there yet. Right. And until she get there, right, there's no sex before marriage. 
Sex before marriage is a sin according to the Bible, according to God. And yet if you are here this morning and you have had sex before marriage, it need not lead you on a constant guilt trip. What it needs to remind you of is that you are, like everybody else who's ever lived, a sinner in need of God's grace. But praise the Lord that God gives grace to the humble and repentant. Indeed, the very son whom he was bringing through the womb of this virgin was sent to save those of us who have not remained virgins. The son of the virgin came to save those who should have remained virgins so that we too could have salvation. Right? There's no sin beyond God's grace. There's no sin that God didn't, hadn't sent his son to die for. Friends, I hope that that is an encouragement to you today, not to live in pity and grief and in the gutter of remorse, but to go to the one that God sent to get you out of it. God is gracious. Mary doesn't balk at the angel's message. She marvels at it. How will it be that a virgin will have a baby? The angel answers in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. This child will not be born through natural, but rather supernatural means without the agency of a human father, but rather through the agency of the Holy Spirit, the, the third person of the Trinity who brings life. We need to clarify here. This is not some kind of sick, twisted idea that God uh, leaves kind of his heavenly realm and comes into the, the earthly realm, has sex and impregnates Mary. Uh, that's more the kind of thing you read in kind of mythological tales of, of the kind of gods and mythology, right? Leaving heaven, impregnating uh, people in the world. And even some of the creation stories is that's how the world comes about. That's, that's not what the God of the Bible does. This Holy Spirit coming upon Mary is not God having sex with Mary. That's a perverse idea. No, rather, it's the kind of idea that you, you get in Genesis chapter 1, 2, where the Spirit, we read, is hovering over the face of the deep. His creative power about to work. That's what it is. God supernaturally, the, the, the third person of the Trinity who gives life, giving life to a virgin womb. It's because Jesus is conceived not through any man, but through the spirit that he came into the world, not infected by the disease that infects every single man and woman. You see, Jesus Christ is sinless. He came into the world sinless. He didn't have Adam's guilt and Adam's sin passed down to him like all of Adam's progeny because Jesus didn't come from Adam's seed. He was conceived of the spirit. He was filled with the spirit from the womb. He was preserved with the spirit from the womb. He was uh, empowered by the spirit from the womb so that all his days he lived by the spirit, set apart for God, set apart from sin. Why is it important? Some people think I'm a Christian. I don't have to believe the virgin birth. You need to believe the virgin birth if you're going to believe in a Christ who was crucified for your sins. Because if there's no virgin birth, if Jesus comes into the world like every other single human being, then Jesus comes into the world with a sinful nature and can't no sinner save a sinner. Amen. 
You need a sinless savior. You need someone who is sufficient to be your savior. And the only one sufficient is someone who's never sinned. And God had it planned from the before the foundation of the world. This virgin just learns about it. Thousands of years later, we learn about it through the book, but God had planned it all before he created the first little Adam. Not the person, Adam, the Adam, the, the molecules, those little things, right? God had everything perfectly planned out for you and me. God was going to bring life in Mary's virgin womb. Unless Mary needed a reminder of his ability to do so, the angel tells her that your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, notice how he, he says it, right? The one who was barren. I love how God puts things in the past tense. He's able by his power to put things in the past tense. Barren was an unmovable, fixable term that was attached to Elizabeth all the days of her life. But God had worked in her life. So that now that thing that she could not shake was behind her. She was barren. If you need a reminder of what God can do, look at what God has done. The, the woman who was barren has born a child. And then ultimately, look at verse 37. The ultimate answer to the how will this be question? Verse 37, for nothing All right. will be impossible with God. That's incredible. Nothing? Nothing will be impossible for God. All things are available to him. All things are within his power and his purview. They might not all be in his plan, but they are all within his power. God can do everything. And if you don't believe that at the incarnation, you won't believe that at the resurrection. You got to believe that he's able to bring life to a virgin womb to understand that he's also able to bring life out of a dead tomb. Don't doubt his power any moment of the testimony of scripture. Don't doubt his power any moment of any second in your life. All things are possible with him. He's all powerful. But friends, that statement would not be good for us if it were merely a statement of fact. That statement is good for us because it is a statement of act. The almighty, powerful God for whom nothing is impossible acts in favor toward us, granting us what we most need but least deserve. His presence, his power, not to destroy but to save. Praise God for his grace to sinners like us in need of it. And praise God that grace isn't deserved or earned, that God doesn't operate off our own standards, but off his own timeline, his own plan. His plans are better than ours. Praise God. Trust in him for his grace. That's what Mary does, which leads us to our second point. Mary's praise. Mary's praise. Rocked by this news from this heavenly messenger, Mary goes to visit her relative Elizabeth, whom the angel also said was, was pregnant. Look with me at verses 39 through 45. We read, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, 
The baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. The Lord is kind, isn't he? Amen. To give us confirmations of his promises and his plans. To, to firm up our faith with more testimonies. And Mary believed the angel Gabriel's words about the child to be born even in her virgin womb. And, and, and as she went to visit Elizabeth, God graciously provided even more testimonies through Elizabeth and through the child in her womb to confirm what the angel had already said. You see, the Lord wants our faith deepened. He wants us to delight in him. Right. And so he gives us more than one testimony, even though we don't deserve any of them. Right. right? God could just say things one time and it should be enough. Right. God sends an angel and then he sends Elizabeth and he sends John the Baptist through his witness in the womb to confirm up and to confirm what he's spoken to Mary. It's the same with us, the same way he does with us. I mean, have you ever stopped and pondered why we have four Gospels? I mean, do we need all four? Right. I mean, one would tell us the story of Jesus, but God is kind to give us four portraits of the man, Jesus Christ, four pictures, not contradictory, but confirmatory to confirm together with different details pointed out with different instances, different stories, different timelines, different points of emphasis regarding the man, Jesus, so that we might know more deeply this Jesus is real and really did what God said he did. God is kind to firm up our faith with multiple testimonies. As soon as Mary meets Elizabeth here, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist, leaps for joy. Again, this is not the primary focus here, but just notice the Bible's picture of biology, of when life begins in the womb. This six-month-old in Elizabeth, Elizabeth's baby is a baby. This six month in Elizabeth's womb is not simply an embryo or a fetus, it's a baby. And this baby, this six month old baby that nobody can see outside the sonogram, this six month old baby is able to feel emotions. This six month old is able to have joy. And not only is this six-month-old baby whom nobody can see outside the womb able to feel emotions, but this six-month-old baby inside the womb is able to express emotions through actions. This baby is able to leap, right? If you, if you are a mother or have had a, a baby in your womb, we've got a pregnant sister right there. She might be, that baby might be leaping right now, right? It ain't, it ain't the forerunner of Jesus necessarily, but it is a wonderful baby. I, I guarantee that. Um, those babies move, right? And this, the Bible tells us, wasn't no random movement. This baby leaped for joy at the sight of Jesus. This is not just a mass of tissue, but a person. Amen. Friends, again, this is not the main point of the text, 
but it's, it's worth mentioning the emphasis here. That, that this is why Christians can never be for pro-abortion. This is why Christians must always clearly be against abortion. And that is not a political statement tied to a political party. That is a political statement tied to the Lord is Jesus Christ. God is the authority figure of my life. And what he says is true. Friends, we don't need to divide or to, to, to kind of cast stones regarding this issue. We need to believe what the Bible says. Life begins at conception. These children, right? Our children, from the moment of conception, are able to feel and express. Pray the Lord would spare millions of children's lives from abortion. Be sought in light. Continue being sought in light in those areas. Trust that the Lord would spare children. Praise God that Elizabeth didn't get an abortion. Praise God that Mary didn't get an abortion. Right? Praise the Lord. These, this unborn child's actions. The unborn child in John the Baptist, in, uh, in uh, Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist, his actions were a precursor to what he would do in his life outside the womb, rejoicing at the sight of Jesus. Right? He said in, 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 in the book of John, right, uh, the, 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 the bridegroom is the one that the, that the people in the wedding party rejoice over. Right? Don't nobody come to the wedding to see the people in the wedding party. Right? No, no one, don't, nobody knew you were there. They come to the wedding party to see the person of main emphasis. Right? John's ministry was one pointing, joyously pointing to Jesus as the greater. I shall decrease, he shall increase. And even in the womb, God is setting his purpose in place. His actions in the womb were matched by his mother's actions and announcements outside the womb. Elizabeth joyfully explained that her younger relative, Mary was blessed by God to be carrying a child in her womb. This virgin was a mother. And not just any mother of any child. But look at verse 30, uh, 43. The mother of my Lord. <laughs> Filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth. Older. Wiser, more distinguished, looks at Mary and calls her blessed. Why? Because you carry my Lord in your womb. Friends, Jesus doesn't have to become Lord. In the womb, Jesus is Lord. So if you are marching around with this kind of false idea that you can accept Jesus as your Savior now and later make him your Lord. Understand what the Bible says. He is always Lord. And so you thinking that you can make him savior now and Lord later means you have neither now. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth pronounced that Mary was carrying in her stomach the very son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it evokes in Mary deep praise when Mary hears Elizabeth's words matching what the angel had just spoken. And then Elizabeth saying what happened internally, Mary wouldn't have seen that child leap. She needed Elizabeth to testify. When Mary hears that, Mary can't help but to burst out in joy, burst out in praise. Look with me at verses 46 through 56 of your Bibles. We read, and Mary said, my soul rejoices the Lord, magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. 
For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their thoughts, the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. What an amazing example of a prayer of praise. All right, we've had a lot of prayer of praises from this podium, from this stage, from this platform, right? None don't beat Mary's prayer of praise, right? Again, for all those who would say that the Bible constantly puts down women, have you noticed in our Advent series how godly these women are in these stories? How much their faith is kind of exemplified and seen as an example to follow? Notice Mary is shown to be a faith-filled woman. Mary is shown to be a scripture-filled woman. If you've read the Bible, you might notice that Mary's prayer of praise sounds eerily similar to Hannah's prayer of praise in 1 Samuel chapter 2, where Hannah rejoiced in the Lord after she'd given birth to the son promised to her, Samuel. Well, here, Mary praises the Lord even before the son promised to her is born. She praises in anticipation of the fulfillment of the promise because she knows who God is. Her prayer not only reflects Hannah's prayer, her prayer sounds like many of the Psalms. I mean, David in Psalm chapter 34, verse 3 says, come, magnify the Lord with me. And Mary starts off here in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. Psalm 35 verse 9 says, my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. And Mary says here in verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary's heart, even at a young age, is filled with scripture. And those scriptures are poured out in praise from her lips once she experienced God's grace to her. Young people, I pray that that encourages you to know, to study, to meditate on, to memorize God's word for yourself. You will only be as godly as much of God's word as you eat, as you capture, right? Godliness isn't something that just kind of pops up on you like suddenly, right? You're not going to just kind of get hit by the, the, the spirit, which some churches might tell you, right? On count of three, you're going to catch the spirit and automatically start speaking wonderful truth. No, when you get filled by the spirit, you know what the spirit does, right? He fills you with God's word, right? And not just out of the nowhere, right? He fills you with God's word that you've been meditating on. How does Mary know Hannah's prayer of praise? How does Hannah know Psalm 34 and Psalm 35? Because Hannah had been reading her Bible, how does Jesus know Psalm 22 on the cross? Because Jesus had been meditating on the Bible. Young people know God's word. Meditate on God's word. Hannah praised the Lord. And again, notice how, how Hannah acknowledges some things about God. She acknowledges that God looks upon her in pity. God has helped the humble 
And notice Hannah acknowledges needing God's grace by acknowledging that she needed a savior. Did you realize that? Hannah says, God is my savior. Friends, against Roman Catholic theology, Mary is not impeccable. Mary is not perfect. Mary is a sinner who needs a savior. The very son who was the Lord of Elizabeth in Mary's womb was also Mary's Lord and Mary's savior. She needed him just as much as we need him. What else does Mary do? Mary in this, this prayer of praise talks about some specific attributes that are praiseworthy in God. Look at verse 49. She praises God for his might. She says, he who is mighty has done great things for me. It brings us back to Gabriel's earlier assertion. Nothing will be impossible with God. Mary embraces that. Yes, the Lord is mighty. Nothing is impossible for him. He does great things. And again, look at how it's personal. He does great things for me. For me. He's filled this virgin's womb with a son, done great things for me. She praises God not only for his power, for his might in the first half of verse 49, but she also praises God in the second half of verse 49 for his holiness. She says, holy is his name. Absolutely perfect, pure, sinless. Holiness is not simply something God has. Holiness is who he is. The angels around God's throne constantly, Isaiah 6 tells us, gather around shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The prophets proclaim over and over again in the Old Testament, calling him the, the holy one of Israel. And Mary joins the, the prophets and the angels song, holy is his name. That's not a light thing that God is holy. Because in his holiness and in his light and in his purity, all our uncleanliness, all our filth, all our unholiness is seen more clearly. And God, as our holy and righteous God and judge, ought to judge us for every single one of our sins, for our refusal to live by his holy commands and by his holy word. We deserve misery from the hands of a holy God. But, but look at what follows Mary's attribution of God's holiness in verse 50. She praises God for his mercy. This mighty, holy, powerful God is also merciful. He doesn't give us what we deserve. His mercy is for those who fear him or revere him, who are in awe of him, who worship him, who honor him, who turn to him from generation to generation. God looks at his people with pity. His heart is not against, but for us. He was merciful in times past to Israel, in Egypt, and in the time of the judges, and in the wilderness, and in the exile. He's been merciful to them in the past, and he will be merciful again from generation to generation to generation. Though his people have sinned again and again and again, his mercy is more. That's his character. Mary looks at the wonderful announcement the Lord has given her through the angel. She hears Elizabeth's confirmation of it, and it leads her to reflect deeply on God's character over the years. He has always been for his people, helping the weak and rescuing the needy. And she sees her story, her experience, as wrapped up in God's more grand narrative overall. Notice she says in verse 54, God has helped his servant Israel. 
in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God made promises in times past to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and later to David, to all of Abraham's posterity and offspring that he'd bless them with land and with blessing and with rescue, with salvation, that he'd show covenant mercy to his covenant people. Here early in the first century, those promises look unfulfilled, but Mary praises God for being a faithful God. For being faithful to his promises as a seed of Abraham, a seed of David, more than that, the very son of God, Jesus Christ, resides in her womb, the fulfillment of of all the scripture. The mercy that God promised to deliver was delivered through his son, Jesus Christ. All the promises of God find their yes and their amen in him. As one commentator notes, Mary teaches us in this passage that we ought to praise God before his work is completed. Mary didn't see everything already, but she was praising already before the child was born. Later, the the scriptures will pick up on, on praising God because we know that every one of his plans will be completed, will be fulfilled. You notice how Paul's kind of brief summary of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, right, talks about Jesus dying in accordance with the scriptures and being buried and raising again in accordance with the scriptures, we can trust that God will always complete, fulfill his plans. And we can praise him even when we don't see the fulfillment of everything he's promised now. We know that a new heavens and a new earth is coming. We know that the sun is going to descend on a cloud just as he went up in a cloud. We know that the Lord will rescue us from all our sins. We know that he will wipe every tear from our eyes so that even if we can't experience those things now, we can praise him even before they're completed. Because so many of God's previous plans and promises have been fulfilled. right? And he's training us to trust him even now with what we don't yet see. Mary praised God even before she could see everything. She praised the Lord and we should as well. And not only us, the whole world should as well because of what Mary's son was coming to bring to the entire world. Joy. Joy. Point number three, the world's joy. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. As we look at verses 1 through 12 together to, to close our time. We pick the story back up in Luke chapter 2. Towards the end of Luke 1, Elizabeth and Zechariah give birth to John the Baptist. And Luke chapter 2, now we, we open up to see the actual birth of Jesus. And notice something of the strange circumstances surrounding it. Look with me at Luke chapter 2. We read, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. That all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in the manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Rome was the world power. 
And Caesar Augustus, who we learn about in verse 1, uh, was the emperor of Rome and thus the world leader. And he, Caesar Augustus, likes to swing his weight around. He gives a decree here that all the inhabited world under Roman rule should be registered for the purposes of collecting taxes. Caesar wants everybody to know who rules. He commands everybody then to leave where they are and to go to their designated hometowns that they might be counted so that he can command a tax to later be taken. And that's often what world powers do. Command that you come to them so they might take from you. It all produces a kind of sorrow, doesn't it? But behind all of Caesar's posturing is the providential hand of the Lord providing. It's this very occasion of Caesar demanding this registration that brings Joseph and his pregnant wife Mary to the city of David, Bethlehem. And while there, verse 6 tells us that it just so happens that at that time, in that place, it came time for her to give birth to a son. Why now? Why here? Is it random? Uh, No, it's in fulfillment of God's plans. Because Micah chapter 5 verse 2, the prophet Micah said, You, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, little old Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. This supposed world ruler, Caesar, giving this decree is so that God could bring Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem and bring his son into the world in fulfillment of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. The true king of all the world was about to be born in this place with far better purposes than Caesar's. He came to the world. Well, Caesar demanded that all the world come to him. Jesus gave to the world while Caesar demanded that the world give to him. No, he came not to collect from the world. Jesus came to bring something to the world, eternal salvation. You you didn't have to pay any tax. You didn't have to pay for his favor, right? He didn't command you to come. Jesus came to us. The king had come in Bethlehem, the true ruler who was bringing his true reign, not by swinging his weight around, but by his humble submission. Look at how he came. Look at how this king came, humbly and lowly like a servant. The king and savior of the world came as a baby. Verse 7 tells us, wrapped in little swaddling cloths and laid in a despicable manger, a feeding trough for animals. As the song says, from the squalor of a borrowed stable, the king of the world reigned as a baby. And why this little detail about the swaddling cloths? For one, I think you'll see in the next few verses, it's one of the ways that the angel tells the shepherds in the field that they'll eat. Uh, recognize who Jesus is by, by finding this baby wrapped in swaddling cloth. So, so one is a kind of marker of designation. But more than that, I think it's a literary device that Luke uses. At the beginning of his life, Jesus is bound in cloths. And at the end of his life, Jesus is bound in cloths. You see, Christmas was leading to the cross, but the cross was leading to resurrection. Because on the third day from his death, the Bible tells us that the disciples went to the tomb 
where Jesus was buried. And Luke, who the same writer here, begins by telling us at the front end that Jesus was was wrapped in swaddling cloths. At the end of Luke, in Luke chapter 24, verse 12, Luke tells us that Peter, the disciple, goes up to the tomb of Jesus. And when he peeks his head in there, all he sees are the cloths. But no Jesus. The one who was bound has been unbound. Nobody unwrapped him. He laid aside the grave clothes. He folded them up neatly and left them as a witness that the one who once was held is no longer held by cloths, nor by sin, nor by death. You cannot hold the one and only Son of God. He had come not just to break himself out of bondage, not just to break himself out of cloths, he came to break us free. And not simply under the oppressive reign of Caesar Augustus demanding these taxes, but to break us free from the oppressive reign of sin demanding our life. Jesus Christ came so that we might forever have our souls set free. And for those who are free, we are free indeed in him. For all who turn from our sins and trust in him. God's begotten son came not to bring us deeper into bondage, but to grant us freedom and life and light to all who turn to him in repentance and faith. He came to bring joy to all the world suffering and sorrow under false rulers and false leaders. As he expressed in this final passage to the shepherds in the field. Look with me at verses 8 through 14. We read, and in the same region, There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Notice again how God goes to the lowly shepherds on a respectable profession in Israel. Right, he, he leaves the, the scene in, in, in Bethlehem where we read about the king, Caesar Augustus, and he goes to the people on the total opposite side of the spectrum, shepherds out in the field. And the Lord tells these lowly shepherds the most majestic news in all the world. These shepherds who nobody really cared about, they only wanted stuff from, you go take care of our sheep, you give us some wool, you give us some food, right? Do your duty, we don't care about you. God cares though. God visits these shepherds out in the field and listen what God says to the lowly, to you, this day a savior is born. And notice how the Lord describes it. This is good news of great joy, right? It's great joy because all of us need to have our sins forgiven. And Jesus Christ has come to forgive us. He announced it to lowly shepherds and notice the shepherds are the first that are to come to see Jesus. The shepherds are the first to come to see Jesus. The shepherds who've been out in the field all night and who are smelly. The shepherds who've been out in the field all night stepping on sheep dung aren't told to first make sure you go clean yourself off. 
to first go and, and pretty yourself up in your best outfits and put some cologne on before you go see the king. The shepherds out in the field are told, in all your filth, go see the king. To you has come a savior. Go see him. Friends, that's good news for us. Jesus hasn't come and told us that you have to come perfectly to him. If Jesus required that, he would not have come. Perfection doesn't require a savior. It's imperfection, it's ugliness, it's faults and flaws, it's our dirt, it's all our shame, it's the things that you try to keep inside that Jesus says bring to him. Come to the king. The king has come to you. He's come bringing good news of great joy. And notice it's for all the people. For anyone, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, old, young, fully healthy or those who are debilitated, those of any segment or section of life, to all the people there's good news to be had. A savior has been born. And what's that savior do? What's that savior bring? Peace on earth. All of our sins have created hostility with God. But Jesus Christ has become our peace. But not to every single body. Don't just think Jesus came so I'm good with God. Peace with those to whom God is pleased. Don't presume that God is pleased with you in your sin. The only way God can be pleased with you and you can have peace with him is through faith in his son, Jesus. He sent Jesus just not as a historical act 2,000 years ago. He sent Jesus as a savior for all of history 2,000 years ago so that 2,000 years later, you and I might trust him with all our lives. This good news it's only good news to you if you respond to it. Amen. Turn from your sins. Put your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And if you've already done that, notice what the Bible says. That regardless of all the sorrows and hurts and trials and tribulations that will come your way in life, and particularly because you follow Jesus, know that what should mark us because of what Christ has done for us is great joy. Whatever else is hectic or conflict and conflict in your life, you can know you have peace with God. It's the greatest gift we can all have. The greatest gift that God has given us. Peace through his son, Jesus Christ. Praise God that he has graciously given us his son. Graciously sent his, world, his son into the world to rescue us so that we might forever rejoice in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would allow these old truths for many of us not to become old in our hearts and our souls. Uh, Lord, break them fresh like, uh, like new wineskins, Lord. And, and, and water us, Lord. Cheer our hearts with the good news that Christ, a Savior, has been born. That Christ the Savior has died for our sins. That Christ the Savior has risen from the grave and he reigns. And that all of us who trust in Christ our Savior will live forever with him. For those who don't know you, Lord, draw them to yourself. Confirm for them your promises this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.